0: This episode of Right at the Fork is brought to you by Zoopans Markets. Where you need to sign up for that news feed. Go to zoopans.com and sign up for it. They send you the specials every week. And also, you always get something free. Right now, if you're signed up, and I don't know when you're listening to this, but for instance, when we're recording, if you're signed up this week, you would get some free tulips. Oh, nice. To take home and. You know, that
1: makes sense. makes everybody happy. Give them to your love of your life and they'll be like, it's so considerate of you. It's like, no, Zupans was so considerate. (laughs) Last year I did this, Chris, uh, fresh flowers at Zupans is the way to go. I ordered online, was able to have them delivered to my wife at work. It was so easy to do. So Valentine's Day, less than a month away now, order online. As you mentioned, Zupans.com where you can also sign up for that newsfeed.
0: Yes, and if you walk into the store, they're always beautiful, too. (laughs) You'll also see right now it's citrus season in full swing. The Sumo Mandarins are here, and what I didn't know— those were named because the little knot on the top of the, uh, the top of the, the orange. I didn't put that together. It's the the, the, the man bun. bun. Yeah, the man bun. Yeah. So uh, and they're delicious. So we're we're encouraging you to go down and get a little bite of sister. If citrus you right if now.
1: you walk into the stores right into where the uh, produce departments are, they're right in front of you at the Burnside location. I was just in there the other day. Well, bam. And they're beautiful and colorful. Oh, they're, they are so beautiful. Also, don't forget, Cellar Z regional dinners always taking place in uh, February, Piedmont. And then move to a, another region of Italy in Veneto in March.
0: And so also, I just wanted to mention um, one of the nice things about Italy that we don't have here in Portland is swordfish. Right. So I love going into Zupans and they always have swordfish steaks available and they're delicious. Last time they were, the deal was so good I asked him to pack me up four, mm-hmm. and he said, do you want two of these separately in vacuum pack so you can put them right in the freezer?
1: Yes. Oh, wow.
0: That he was he knew what you were thinking. Yeah. Well, yeah. He, I didn't even ask for it, and now I know they do that. Yeah. So when there's a good deal, it's nice to get a little extra product.
1: It's Zupan's, three locations. Burnside, McAdam, and Lake Grove, and of course, always, zoopans.com. Zupan's.com. <laughs> It's time once again for Portland's Food Scene Podcast. We call it right at the fork and this is what happens as Chris Angeles from Portland Food Adventures comes together with me, Court Johnson. I'm in here just to push some buttons. No, you're not. I, I do some other things. Yeah. It would be interesting if you actually pushed buttons. If I actually did push some buttons. Yeah. And there's sliders and I got to keep Yeah,
0: but if you push guest buttons, that would be kind of fun. Sure. Or I, mine. I could add some sound effects. You don't push. Gary pushes my buttons and oh, I push yeah. his a little bit. Yeah, look, yeah. And so listen to those episodes last Monday of the month. But yep. this time we have, we're early. Actually, we're the last day of the month right now. Yeah. This episode releases January 31st, 2018. And it is right before shuck portland first event of its kind Mm. and uh this is leaf gildersleeve who is pretty much known as uh there are a few fish people and fish i don't know if you call him a fishmonger i don't know but he's actually sourcing some of the best seafood that people can get in portland has he started out with his food truck over on hawthorne a few years ago and now you can find him at uh, provador market and sandy shucking oysters and doing a little more than that, offering up some of the best seafood, sustainable seafood you can find in Portland. And that's what he's all about. And that's what Shuck Portland is all about. There are events going on all week. If you check out shuckportland.org, you will be able to find tickets to some really cool uh, events. Um, I'm going to one on the, the last one, which is the big one at the Nightwood. And that's going to be a multi-course meal. Among others, Vitaly Paley serving seafood. Oh wow! So it's a it's a really That'd cool, be nice. Yeah, it's a really cool lineup. So it was. We've wanted to have Leaf on the um, the podcast for some time. So and now it is that that quest. That is time over. is now. We've we've caught this fish. We've caught this gildersleeve, and here he is. Cool. Right. That's usually my seat. Yeah. I've never sat here before. <laughs> Five years. Does it feel different? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I feel a little more in charge. Maybe I should do this. No, I can't.
2: Because <laughs> he's normally there. Court's producing. usually
0: here. He has yeah. to step out. So. Yeah. Um, but no, that's usually where I'm sitting. Anyway. Yeah. Where you know where I expected to sit when I moved to Portland was in front of a lot of seafood. <laughs> yes. Right. So I moved from Connecticut. We have pretty good seafood there. Sure. I missed my swordfish.
2: What's left of it?
0: Yeah. Well, that's <laughs> what we're going to talk about. But when I got here, Portland isn't really a seafood town.
2: No, it's kind of perceived to be coastal and seafood ish, right. like Seattle would is. But, right. Uh, unfortunately, it really hasn't been established in that way.
0: And I, of course, we're not right on the coast, but neither is Seattle. And my first experience in the Pacific Northwest was in Seattle. And of course, when you go there, you're going to Pike place market, and you're, you're feeling the ocean yeah. and the sound, yep. but then I got to Portland, and it was like salmon, and more expensive than it was back east. Yeah,
2: well, back east, it was just farm-raised Atlantic salmon, so a well, little different. Right.
0: Just give, <laughs> and then you give me my locks and I'm okay. Yes. So, But anyway, so, um, and now I'm out on the coast. I spent some time on the coast, and I found some great places for seafood, but it's still, I don't think... You know, I, I don't have... I had a fish market when I lived in Guilford, Connecticut, where it was Jacques Pepin's fish yeah. market. Wow. That's where he went. Yeah. And it was great. Yeah. I, You have a wonderful... You ha, you know, you, you have a wonderful market as well. Thank you. But um, that didn't start till a couple of years ago where you are now, and then you had your food cart. Yep. And it's a slightly different vibe than Jacques Pepin's seafood <laughs> store, and it was really nice. So anyway... Um, I wanted to talk seafood. It's great. And it's the one I'm thinking of the environment. It's the one thing that really scares me because uh, the information that I'm going on that I just touch on here and there is, you know, we may not have seafood uh, for my kids That's right. or their
2: kids. Or we'll just have different kinds of it because we've depleted a lot of the other species if we're not careful.
0: Right. Yep. And, I, and I hear, uh, I, I touch on a little bit from some restaurants and so forth and people are into it, but uh, I'm curious to learn. I'm interested in learning more about it and what, how close, how perilously close we are to losing some of the wonderful bounty that we have now, and what the odds are that we're going to be able to sustain that. And you're working on that. You're working working hard on, on that.
2: it. Yeah, working hard on. You know, it's a uh, it's a broad topic that deserves so much time. And and there's so many different components and facets of the industry that so many people don't know. I even being somebody that's been in the industry for my whole life, my family had a fish market growing up as a kid. So I'm a second generation fishmonger and I'm still learning every day. There's still tricky stuff that happens in the industry that I learn about, that I'm more aware about. And then I make sure that my consumers don't get that, that happens to them. I provide them with a, a better product that doesn't have the preservatives in it or isn't treated in a certain way or isn't fished in a certain way. Um, but man, there's a lot, lot to it. Just like our food industry in this day and age, there's just so much going into it. And we're finally, as consumers, starting to recognize that, you know, maybe we need to ask a few more questions. And,
0: and there are a lot of people that aren't asking questions. So there's, there's different subsets of, of diners or eaters, whatever they may be. Some people who don't care. Yep. Other people who other people who do care, but uh, a lot of the the research is something they're not going to do. So, just like the um, the the ocean, there are people like you who are really close to it, who are th- at the heart of it, who are making sure with knowledge um, how to go about doing these. Th- doing what you're talking about being sustainable yeah um and then some of us I, I haven't done enough research i'm eating a lot of seafood i'm concerned does the tuna has that has this been um has this been tainted from fukushima sure. um you know and i'm i'm looking into what are the best seafoods what are the best products to consume but we're relying on folks like you and i haven't i have i have to admit i'm not going into the seafood market to talk to someone like you about my food enough and i probably should be
2: yep yep i mean you know that it's first thing i think as a consumer we have this perception that asking questions at a restaurant is annoying and it's kind of a well, it pain can in the be. butt yeah. and it is uh but you know being that this year is the end of Portlandia. I guess that's a, a, a recognition to, the, to that show alone that they actually did bring a little bit more awareness of, hey, you need to ask questions about where that chicken ca- came from. Mm-hmm. Maybe not as much about what his name was. We don't really care that much about what his name was. Um, but it is important to know where your food's coming from. Uh, on the flip side of that, you know, they kind of make it seem like it's a pain in the butt to ask the questions at the restaurant where I don't necessarily agree with that. I do think that consumers need to pay more attention. They need to ask more questions. If it says herb-crusted salmon, they need to ask what kind of salmon that is that's herb-crusted because if that restaurant and that chef is paying the extra money for a wild king salmon, Chinook salmon, that's a, the top of the tier of, of the salmons, they're paying more money for it. And if they were paying more money for it, they would want to market it as wild king salmon you know herb-crusted king salmon not just herb-crusted salmon so you need to pay attention to the details at the at the on the menu at the restaurant and make sure you're asking the questions and you are being a pain in the butt because if that chef gets that server coming back enough times of the guests asking the questions and asking the questions asking the questions they're going to recognize that it is important
0: and so, they're going to need to know before they before the fact, like, I need yep. to find this out so I don't have to keep going back and forth.
2: Yeah. Oh, they know damn well what it is. They just choose to not put it on the menu. Oh, okay. So, so, if, so if, people, if you're
0: not seeing King Salmon,
2: yeah, then it's not. You,
0: you, it's not yeah. Because they're, as you said, they're, going to, they're g- going to want to recognize they're going above and beyond. Yep. But how then do we check? Other than trusting that if they do say King salmon, it actually is King salmon.
2: Well, that's, that's a credibility thing that, you know, I feel like most places, if they get asked it enough, then the, they can't really convey enough times f- from their chef to the server or through the manager and that, and keep on lying about it, eventually that will come out. So just keep asking a question. And, and Yeah, that's and how you the keep them honest,
0: by asking. But yeah. there, but there's a subset of this food scene in Portland where yeah. people are conscious, and they know the chefs, they know who the chef is when they're in a restaurant, and they're much more interested. Then there's this whole world out there of people who aren't really that conscious. That, that's true. they paying attention. They're probably never going to ask. Yeah. And, and and to your point about it being a pain in the ass to be asked all the time there's a lot of false alarms because they're asked about things that uh, you know at some point if you're going to go down the menu and get on each item and you're talking about food allergies and everything there's only so many so many questions that can be asked and so much uh, labor costs going into it where you can't have someone going back and forth to the kitchen all the time. And, and, and let's face it, a lot of the service staff in Portland or anywhere just isn't isn't as knowledgeable as you would like them to be, or I would like them to be. Definitely.
2: Definitely. So yeah, I mean, just, you know, one, one step at a time. I I feel like just, you know, picking a, picking a few, you know, getting down to your top two items that you think you're going to pick off the menu and then ask about them and, and see if that one, or if that one, if you don't get the right answer from that one, then pick the other one. You definitely don't want to ask about all six items because that is a pain in the ass.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Especially if you've got two people or four people and you're, yeah. you're doing that whole thing. So, um, how concerned are you as a diner? Do you get out a lot, by the way? You're a busy guy. Do you? And I find a lot of people we interview, they don't get to get out as much as they would like because they're working very hard.
2: Yeah, not as much. I've got two young kids as well, so it's a little mm-hmm. bit more challenging to uh, either have them covered or to take them to places because that's a pain in the butt as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so not as much. I was When I was selling wholesale fish to the different restaurants around, I was getting out more then uh, to visit the chefs that I was selling the fish to and that. But, you know, I still get out. A handful of times uh every couple months and and visit the the favorites and um more lunchtime stuff not as many fancy dinners
0: so are you asking those questions every time or do you just kind of know off off hand oh well, most of it because you're going to the people you know and what they you you know what they might be buying are they not buying from you any longer? You're not selling no, wholesale to restaurants? I'm just doing retail now. Okay, you're yeah. just doing retail. You
2: know, I know what's available in the marketplace. So if I see something that, you know, creates a red flag, then I know something's up or I know they're defrosting fish or, you know, which is fine. Defrosted fish can be fine as long as it's done properly. And it was a good fish to start with. It's handled properly in that. So, um, you know, overall for Portland, you know, a lot of the restaurants have salmon and halibut and, and they're not as fun uh, with the with the sand dabs and the you know wolf eel and and different more undesirable species, which I think is important that the chefs need to continue to expand their horizon and the consumers need to be more open to trying those different dishes as well because you know if we continue to put pressure on only the top four species the bass, the salmon, the tuna, and you know the shrimp mm-hmm. then then those are going to have problems um, and and there 's too much pressure, too much human pressure, too much demand on those uh, specific fish uh, paul Re- paul greenberg wrote a great book uh, a couple of years back called four fish and it talks about that That there's just so much demand on those those four species that we need to broaden our horizon and have more awareness of the more undesirable species chef's collaborative did a trash fish uh, you know um marketing push a couple of years back and that was to bring more awareness to the undesirables and so that's skate wing that's wolf eel that's sand dabs that's different kinds of soul, English soul, soul, starry soul, you know, different kinds of cod, different stuff.
0: I would think they need to repeat that, though, because I remember that happening. Yeah. I was aware of it, but it's not something, you know, a couple of years later that's top of mind. So yeah. much like uh, you are starting Shuck Portland, yep. and that's going to be, I assume, an annual thing, and that yes. will keep... Issues with oysters and shellfish top of mind as we go, trash fish in my mind, I saw it I remember Kathy Wims doing yeah doing exactly. so I remember that, which is pretty good for me because my memory is like <laughs> and uh, but there hasn't been anything since. so when, when you use words like need, mm-hmm. we need to mm-hmm. That's one thing. Doing it is another thing. And it's not all on you. But no, I mean, it's hard to get a collective body of people moving in the same direction. So uh, are you taking notes? Or are you saying I'm, call, I'm gonna, call Kathy or call and, somebody? A
2: I'm going to write back down trash fish because, you know, that is a, uh, a good point. But... For you know bandwidth, you're right. It does take a lot. This this whole Shuck Portland event that we're putting together is going to be an annual event. It's been four of us that have been organizing it, and oh my gosh, it's all just something for you know nonprofit. We're going to raise a bunch of money to benefit uh, wild oyster restoration projects on the Oregon coast. So we're looking to raise money, and we're going to seed oyster beds in Neatarts Bay and Yaquina Bay uh, down in Newport. And because we used to have all these oyster, oyster, shell, oyster populations on the Oregon coast, and then in the early 1900s, they came and just harvested them all. So now there's none. And so that's what we're looking to do is raise money.
0: I mean, there's none. There's, so I can go a lot of places and get raw oysters yeah, at happy hour for a dollar.
2: Yeah, they're cultured oysters. So they're, okay. they're aquaculture. So they're farm-raised. Um, really no difference from a wild oyster um, because oysters are bivalves. They're filter feeders. So basically you lease a plot of ground from the state, and then there's oyster hatcheries that take – adult oysters and mix the eggs and the sperm and, and make little baby oysters. And then once the oyster gets to be a certain size, little larvae, then you you put them, they attach to old oyster shells and then you take those old oyster shells that have the little babies on them and put them out in your plot that you leased from the from the state. And then it takes about anywhere from a year to two years for that to grow to market size. And then you go back out and harvest that oyster off of that plot that you leased from the state. So really, a cultured oyster in X plot versus the wild oyster that's right next to it—it's the same difference. It's been eating the same wild algae that's in the ocean um, as as the next one. So they're cultured, but but really just in a controlled environment, um, a harvestable environment per se.
0: And so, uh, what are the effects on that? So, as a consumer, you're saying there's not much difference in flavor.
2: This no, not no, much no. Or, or are health, awesome. the health aspects are? The same. The same. And they're actually a net positive for the environment because they're taking nutrients out of the water. Mm-hmm. Whereas, as, as humans, we're um, adding so many components and adding so many nutrients to the water. So, they're a net positive when it comes to aquaculture or farming fish or anything like that. That's adding nutrients to the water. So, so all the shellfish aquaculture is, is a net positive for the environment. So, it's really sustainable.
0: Oh, okay. So, I long ago saw on PBS, they had a really fascinating. Um, a show yes. on uh, the Oregon Experience, I
2: believe it was. Yes, and we have I him come in to talk at Chuck at the port at the panel discussion.
0: Oh, cool! Night. Yeah. I want to hear that. Yeah. I want to go to that. I don't think I'm signed up for that one. Yeah, that's Tuesday, right.
2: February sixth.
0: Okay, I have to get on that. Yeah, um, I'm on the final. I, I'm going to the uh, the final dinner. The talk Italy's. a little bit about that. So, as long as we're on that, tell me, sure. tell, tell us who the chefs are there and what we can expect so that's the grand finale what's that called the ocean Pacific yep, Ocean yep,
2: yep Pacific Ocean dinner right. um, that's going to be a, a hoot we've got Vitaly Paley which is who's he? renowned uh, chef uh, <laughs> restaurant owner here in Portland for 20 years and uh, one of his head chefs Matt um, at a, a couple of his restaurants he's got his main guys heading up the program for uh, for the evening there there's going to be um, a couple other chefs and shellfish producers involved along with May from Olympia Oyster Bar myself Leaf from flank Fish company, um, and and then uh, we're going to be doing a couple of the courses as well through our prospective restaurants. And um, yeah, it's we're gonna have um, oh uh, Marco there from Chelsea Shellfish, uh, um, that's a oyster grower up in um, Shelton uh, Olympia uh, as well, and they're gonna do a couple of the dishes. So it's gonna be a wonderful evening uh, pairing wine and spirits and beer along with it as well. We've got four different breweries in the this week or the the Shuck Week that are brewing oyster beers uh, to go oh, along cool. with, with these events. So I
0: didn't know that. Yeah, so that's a little bonus to yeah. having got going already. Yep. Yeah. And that's it's at the Nightwood.
2: The Nightwood, yeah, new new gig with uh, Camus Davis's um, new new venue, mm-hmm. which is going to be exciting to to. to which got it.
0: funded, by the way. Got it yes. hit the
2: Kickstarter funding. Yeah, they, I supported it. What about you?
0: Um, did I? <laughs> Thanks for putting me. <laughs> oh. Well, no, I've supported. I don't remember if I did or not. Anyway, I'll tell you this. This is going to make me sound terrible. I've had I've had n- not so great experiences with with. Uh, kickstarters yeah with supporting people and and one one of the things that i, I don't want to get into this too far but it's okay i mean i supported a uh property once that was being yeah. built and then could never stay there yeah and uh, and then i found also um i supported i'll I say it i'll su- i supported a restaurant out in manzanita mm-hmm. and got attitude from her afterwards yeah. so I'm at the point with Kickstarters yeah. where I, I have my other ways of supporting businesses. Totally, podcast here, getting the word out. What we this for, Shuck, And I'm, I'm, I've learned to feel okay about that. That does not mean that I'll never support another Kickstarter again. But I think twice when I'm like late at night at eleven o'clock at night and say, okay, I'm going to lay two hundred bucks into this. I'm not, you know, no, I'm, yeah. I'm not that flush with cash to be throwing it out there. I know. I, I put one into a restaurant uh, 400 bucks a few years ago. Well, ne- they stopped the program uh, that my, pro- or my my reward has. Yep. And I used it. So
2: I tell you, I did a Kickstarter for Flying Fish when I started it. I supported that. that. You did. Thank and you. And I came to
0: your right event. No.
2: <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, and I will tell you from the, from the back end side, I certainly don't tell businesses or friends that are thinking about doing it that it's all roses because it was a pain in the ass yeah it right. was it was super challenging
0: and there's yeah. a lot of fulfillment there i, oh, I mean tons. i still have my hat that's why i know yeah, i did it right <laughs> i wouldn't get got a hat and i came to that event wherever that was on division yeah, right? yeah somewhere yeah. down there yep. yep
2: yeah that was uh, fun
0: yeah that was great so yeah. anyway there's Thank you my for little- your support my Appreciate pleasure, it. and I'm glad that th- I'm glad that that came up because <laughs> I have supported Kickstarters. It's just lately I'm a little sour on it, it's so yeah. the whole thing.
2: Um, but where were we? Oh, so, you know, you were going to talk about the PBS. Um, pot, um, oh,
0: I want to okay. know. So where do we have? So. Washington and Oregon. Who has better oysters?
2: Well, you know, or Washington does have better, well, better oysters. I guess that's a subjective uh, question. More coveted
0: As, oysters. Right?
2: Um, I I would say Washington. Um, you know, they're they're more renowned for their oysters. You know, two things. Uh, or Washington has better protected bays so it's a more like a lake you know the whole Puget Sound you can grow oysters m- more efficiently uh, we only have a, the handful of protected bays neatarts Bay Equina Bay um, you know these different bays that are up and down the Oregon coast um, not quite as much territory to grow but also the state of Oregon has done a terrible job investing and in supporting aquaculture in Oregon we're way behind the eight ball when it comes to aquaculture compared to Washington produces like 90% compared to our 10% uh, Idaho Idaho Produces 80% of the nation's rainbow trout. Mm-hmm. Uh, California has a big aquaculture industry. Uh, we have almost none, almost nonexistent except for the shellfish, the few oyster farms there are here.
0: And, and crab. So, I mean, well, that's all of... wild.
2: That's wild harvested. Oh, okay. That's not aquaculture. That's not farm raised, um, mariculture. Um, I studied aquaculture in college, so I, I worked you go in, to down in a place in, called Harbor Branch Oceanographic in Fort Pierce, Florida. Yeah, So I I studied down there, worked in different shrimp farms and ornamental aquaculture for clownfish and that sort of thing. And and it is just, it's an amazing industry. Unfortunately, the salmon industry, the Atlantic salmon industry, commodity, you know, the non-native species growing these non-native species out in our Puget Sound and and up into Canada and stuff. And like this summer when, right after the eclipse, the net pen got broke and the release 200,000 non-native Atlantic salmon into the waterways that are competing now with our wild five amazing iconic species. I totally disagree with that. And I think that there's got to be- Oh, that
0: be. was a planned thing? It, it, it wasn't- w- a, it No, a-
2: they, the company didn't do a good enough job maintaining their net pans out there in the Puget Sound, North Puget Sound. And they broke open and all these fish got out, but they were non-native and they're farm-raised and they're just getting disease into the water and they're just n- absolutely not good. It's just, you know, it's commodity produced- farm-raised Atlantic salmon bad 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 it's like McDonald's beef you just it's not good and and so those are things that I, I'm fighting and I, I want to stick up for for aquaculture because there is good aquaculture that can be done more sustainably and but there's a lot of these companies that are just doing it for the money they're packing them in there they're feeding them genetically modified corn feed, um, just not good stuff
0: and what's the outlook with the current political climate with that uh, it doesn't seem, it doesn't seem to me i you've got states fighting federal um, generally speaking i don't know the specifics about aquaculture, but how how does it how does it look right now?
2: You know they're not doing much, even after that whole release and with uh, all this all these issues that they've had with that. There's just really really challenging. Uh, they're really not doing a lot about it. It's, it's hard to go backwards on after they've already permitted these places to invest the millions of dollars into these farms. But I think moving forward, we need to just firm up and make sure the consumers are aware of what's going on, and then that way, for any new permitting, we don't allow that to happen. Uh, there's so many so many issues with 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 aquaculture and with policy Uh, up in Canada. They also there's this uh, investigative reporter that went down with a scuba gear and an underwater camera and videotaped in one of these Atlantic salmon farms um, the discharge where they're processing the fish the discharge of the blood water that they're releasing from Canada just straight into the waterway without treating it or anything. It's these feces and blood and, and, and and little worms, parasites and stuff right into the water column and comes to show or it comes to turn out that Canada just allows sewage to just be discharged into the water column without sewage treatment plants.
0: Ah, Wow, my conventional wisdom would make me think, Canada would be more on top of it than
2: that. I was blown away when I heard this. So, it, but thanks so, to this. And this up come down our way.
0: Do we have to? Do we have to eat that basically, shit?
2: Basically, yeah, eat that shit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, basically. I mean, this is this is Vancouver and Vancouver Island, and that's just on the other side of the Strait to Juan de Fuca, which is on the mouth of the Puget Sound. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's water that absolutely interchanges with with Puget Sound water in the you know Hood Canal and all that. So, absolutely, that is it is um, something that we need to as well find ways to put pressure on them. And thanks to this investigative reporter, it it did bring a lot more awareness. And I do know that the government and the pressure that they're getting is making things change, but it's not until somebody that raises the red flag on something like that that they actually change it. So it's the same with the food industry. As soon as we keep asking the questions, and discovering and exploring what's going on in the industry and what they're putting in our food and what kind of preservatives they're putting in our food, then they're going to be like, oh, wow, they noticed. We better stop doing that. And so we got to continue to be pain in the butts. We got to ask the questions. We got to make sure that we're recognizing, we're seeing, and we're making the choices. We're voting with our dollars, with who we're choosing to support, what species we're buying in the grocery store, making sure that it's not product of China. Uh, You know, here in America, we import 90% of the fish that we consume in America is imported. So we have and how much
0: of that is from somewhere like China that doesn't 80% have 80% okay. I would assume yeah. don't
2: ha- they don't have the environmental no. uh, regulations that no. we would like to have in place for the They'll no, no they don't yeah so 90% of the fish that we consume in America is coming from abroad imported and how long has that been so 80% my, of that is from China
0: so when I grew up seafood wasn't a big part of our diet right yep. the, the, which is longer ago than you care to know <laughs> but seafood was not it was not a big thing growing up and now you know Kids are exposed to sushi early on. I mean, especially with the yeah, the <laughs> sushi track restaurants and all, so
2: oysters. They're eating oysters these days. Yeah, like belly something I never would
0: yeah. have. You know, it wasn't until my late 30s or early 40s where I just even and I love oysters. Where I even learned to appreciate them. Yep. You know, going to a restaurant said, "Yeah, give me six of those on the half shell." Yep. And then. You know, in repeating that experience, eventually along the way you get one bad one, and it turns you off for a while. So, but I haven't had—you know—I don't get bad oysters up here when I order them, and I think I eat a decent quantity of them over a period of time. Is there a difference between what I the what I would get on the East Coast and here in terms of? Why did was it was at the restaurant was that why I got a bad oyster once in a while
2: you know I i, I I'm, I'm not quite sure I, I do know the east coast has more issues with like red tide and and more um you know d- different stuff that happens with water quality that is that they get shut down more from um, from shellfish collection and uh, shellfish harvesting and that so I do believe that there are some different components to the east coast that affect the quality of them
0: um, yeah I just wonder because I got bad ones there and I don't recall having some, you know, out of a dozen oysters, having one or two bad ones, because that can ruin the experience. Totally. So, um, I want to get back to that that PBS show. Yes. Because long ago, this was just, oysters were all over the place, and it was a big industry for the Pacific Northwest, especially Washington. But then Oregon wanted, if I recall, Oregon wanted to compete. And did a lot, put a lot of things in place to make that happen. And then, refresh my memory, what happened?
2: We just over-harvested them. We, we, we went in the and when was early it? 1900s, and they just, oh, that they long just ago. harvested the hell out of them. They had the barges there, and they just loaded them up on there. And then oysters are broadcast spawners. So they basically, um, in the summertime, it's why typically people don't eat as many oysters in the summer, June, July, August, but water is warmer. They spawn. They, they get these, they get kind of milky because um, they get the gamuts, um, the uh, sperm and eggs, basically. And when the moon and the temperature and all everything aligns, then all the oysters at once um, spit that um, Gametes out into the water column and the eggs and the sperm connect in the water column and create this little larvae that swims around for a couple of weeks. And then after a couple of weeks, it, it drops to the bottom and sets on a oyster shell or on a rock or on a pillar or something like that. And it stays there for the rest of its life and grows. Well, it's a, if you don't have enough oysters broadcasting together, then all of them get wiped out because there's just not enough it's it's a volume deal there's millions and billions and billions that need to of eggs and sperm that need to happen in the water column for that to work so once they once it starts over harvesting too many of them then they all just disappear because there's not enough to reproduce to, to create that broadcast spawning effect
0: is there ever a chance that there's no chance that we would ever get back to that.
2: Well, so that's actually what we're doing for Shuck Portland is we are raising money to benefit oyster restoration projects on the Oregon coast. So uh, over the years in the future, we're going to also maybe add Wilpa Bay to that and, and add, you know, Coos Bay and different bays as well up and down the coast for this year. We're going to start with webs, which is the uh, wetlands, in the Neetarts Bay, an organization, a nonprofit organization there. And then we're also going to work with Wetlands Conservancy uh, down in um, Yoquina Bay and with the Siletz Indian Tribe and um, Oregon Oyster Company. They're doing some restoration projects down there. So those are areas that used to have the native Olympia oyster that grew in those bays. And what we're going to do is we're going to collect all the oyster shells we're going to contract with the hatcheries where they're already producing oyster larvae, and then we're going to take the oyster shells, put them in the tanks where there's oyster larvae, and seed those oyster shells with the native oyster, the Olympia oyster. It's a unique little button oyster, and really metallic-y, great flavor, kind of a coppery flavor, um, a lot of punch for the size. We're going to seed those oyster shells with Olympia oysters, and then we're going to put those oyster shells out in the bays, out in these selected bays through these programs that we're working with, and start to rebuild these oyster populations, not for harvesting in the future, just to have oyster populations because it helps to the wetlands and everything for salmon, larvae, and, and it's all part of the, the whole cycle of wetlands to have oysters there. They're filter feeders. They clean the water. Um, the, they they create habitat for small fish and, and all the little copepods and the things that live in the ocean. So that's actually what the goal of Shuck Portland is, is that we're going to restore wild oyster populations on the Oregon coast.
0: And how did this come up? What was the genesis of, uh. How did the first conversation take You
2: place? know, I, I've had it in my mind for a while and I reached out to Malin from Olympia Oyster Bar and, and she had it in, the, in her mind as well. So we got together and joined forces, brought in uh, Jarrett from Tournant, who's a and restaurant here in town, and then um, Natalia... Um, Toral, who is an event planner. Um, she throws parties. So she is the organizer for us, uh, for a bunch of us entrepreneurs that want to blast off ideas. And then she's the one that actually organizes it and follows through with those ideas. So we've got a great team of four of us that are putting it together. And, and, and then we've got our beneficiaries of the, like I mentioned, the Wetlands Conservancy and the, and the webs. Um, so that's where the money's going to be going. And we're throwing some launch parties. We're doing educational classes during the week. We're doing a panel discussion down at Ecotrust during the week. We're doing uh, the big um, fancy dinner with Vitaly Paley and such on on Friday.
0: And some other meals. And then some, some as I understand it, some restaurants around Portland are just going to participate by doing some special things. Yep. So, and if you go to, it's shuckportland.org, correct? Yep. Uh, So if you go there, you can see all... Yeah, participating restaurants
2: will also collect their oyster shells in the week. They're going to donate a percentage of the proceeds to the Shuck Portland organization. Um, And then uh, you can go do little oyster crawls around town and go to the different restaurants that are offering different specials that have to do with Shuck Portland. So trying to bring awareness to the city, trying to get as many people involved, all for the benefit of oysters on the Oregon coast.
0: Maybe you and Natalia and, and Eric, Russ uh, from Pono, because they're, yeah. they're friends. They're doing a fried chicken crawl for the podcast. They're going to oh, do wow. a little crawling and, and just narrate it as they go. Yeah. Maybe you can do an oyster crawl too and talk about some of the different Weed. oysters around. That would be great. Yes. And you know Natalia, you don't have to, you can just put that together. Yes. So anytime during the year, we, just, we usually run one of those, uh, we call them sound bites. Sweet. Where we feature something fun. We did a, yeah. I did one with her where we did, uh, and you can go back and look, it was last year, earlier last year, uh, tartars, steak tartars. Yeah. Uh, well, it was more than steak
2: tartars. But, yeah. So do that. So, That's stellar. Um, what was, did, and you grew up around here? No, I grew up in Northern Idaho, in Sandpoint, Idaho. My dad originally moved from Seattle uh, to inland to Sandpoint, which is only about 350 um, nautical miles, well, nautical miles, um, as a crow flies miles. Yeah, if we could Um, all fly
0: like a crow. Yeah,
2: well, so the reason I say fly is because he used to fly, be a flight instructor for little Cessna planes, so he'd Mm. fly back and forth from Sandpoint, Sandpoint to Seattle all the time, so he'd pick up a box of fish in Seattle, bring it back to Sandpoint, and then sell it in Sandpoint because inland you don't have good seafood there. So that that was the nineteen seventy nine, the year before I was born, that they started flying fish company in my hometown. So I grew up as a kid packaging fish and selling fish in our in my hometown. Just a part time family business, uh, one day a week to start and then it ended up being two days a week. So just part time. And then um my dad recently retired about four years ago and sold the business to another set of folks um, that own it now. How
0: big was it now at this point in
2: time? Oh, same deal. Always just part time. Oh just Wednesdays a and Fridays. Thing. Yep. Yep.
0: And you started your food cart. similarly, right? It was not, you you know... Yes. You didn't go get a big investment, open up Pike's Place Market. No. So So
2: during the recession, I got laid off my kind of real estate estate job out in Utah is where I was living. And when I got out of fish stuff, I was ski bumming for several years out there. Um, Got laid off my full-time job. Couldn't really find other work. This is 2008 and started flying fish company out there. I started selling fish at the farmer's markets in Utah. That lasted for about a year and a half. I had my daughter out there, and then we decided we didn't want to raise her in Utah, so we moved it on out here.
0: I wish we had Court here right now because he's from Utah, and he yeah, moved s- here also. So I you'd saw have, that 801 number, yeah. You'd have that in common, but yeah. I'll speak for Court in saying that he's really glad he made that move. I assume yeah. you are. Oh,
2: yeah. Yeah, you know, it was challenging. Running the fish business out there, it was definitely not received yeah, as well Utah. as it was here. Yeah, they wanted trout and didn't yeah, really and I understand, understand scallops understand and halibut as much. In Park City, it was different, um, but but in, in outside of Park City in Hebers where I had the truck set up, and that was not... There was a, a few set of folks that came in from outside of that area that lived there that all knew better seafood than that, but the rest of the people just wasn't as important. So moved here about eight years ago now and started selling uh, in this big step van that I shipped here from Utah. And I parked that over in, in, the, in a cart pod across from Pock Poc, And that was where it started. I was there for the first six or nine months. And then Kruger, Don Kruger over at Kruger's Produce uh, came over and invited me down to his spot at 23rd and Hawthorne. So <clears throat> it wasn't really space for me to put my truck at 23rd and Hawthorne. So I decided to build out that little shack on the corner. So I had that little eleven by sixteen shack for five years there at Kruger's next to Kruger's Produce and Grand Central Bakery right across from Jam. So that was a nice chapter. I built out the shipping container to be my commercial kitchen. I was producing my smoked salmon out of it. It was just a wonderful had a lot of character. People, customers really enjoyed coming in there. You know, it wasn't with a boat behind it and, and that but we're in Portland we're not next to the ocean so mm-hmm. um, the people and so how did you
0: what was sourcing like did you have to take a lot of time to go out to the coast yeah on an ongoing basis like weekly or how did you get how did how did you procure your product to sell.
2: Yeah. So most of it's kind of how I work is I, I don't, I don't spend a lot of time or labor um, paying somebody else to actually drive and pick up product. I, I, I go out and build the relationships and then figure out ways to get the product shipped to me. So I work with fishermen in Alaska, in Washington, and here on the Oregon coast, actually even down into California. And I work on those relationships, build them up, figure out the logistics on how to get it in and being small local fishermen you and same with the oysters that I get you know some guys come in once a week some guys don't have a schedule when they come in so they just come in when they come in so you got to have dozens and dozens of them so that you put the pieces together and hopefully you get enough product for the week and and outside of that you just fill the rest of the voids with the seafood wholesalers that are here in town or up in Washington and again they ship Product in on on trucks every day, so so you you, whenever possible I source directly from fishermen and from oyster producers, and then outside of that I just fill the gaps with the seafood wholesalers and um, you know producers. Would you
0: would you say that you're the most knowledgeable fishmonger in Portland?
2: Absolutely, with confidence. With confidence. Okay. Yeah,
0: that's so. So what's and in Utah you must have had a little supply and demand problem. Fish has to fish has to move. It had to you fly into have, Salt Lake,
2: yeah, and that's expensive.
0: <laughs> that's expensive, yeah. But did you have any product left over? That you know, did you have a
2: lot of waste? You know, so what I do with my waste, and and this is one of the unique things of my business model, is I create my smoked salmon or other smoked products. Now that I've got the oyster bar, I can create. You know, I make, I put any white fish that's left over into the chipinos or or that sort of or ceviche. So basically any of the reds, any of the salmons or scallops or black cod, anything like that, I, I have it in my case for a couple of days. Um I only have fresh fish in my case, so I don't defrost fish to put in my fresh case. Which what's in my case is fresh, which means it's never been frozen. It's never been hard. Grocery stores just take frozen product and defrost it and then they put it in their case, but that's not fresh fish. That's just defrosted fish. Mm-hmm. So that's the first difference. Is my fish is fresh, which means it's never been frozen. Second thing is I leave it in my case for a couple of days. If it doesn't sell, I pull it out and I brine it and I put it and turn it into smoked salmon. And then and then I fill the case with new fresh fish. So what happens is the case the fish in my case is super fresh and it stays super fresh because I'm pulling and rotating that out because I also need the smoked salmon you know, I need the weight in smoked salmon. So by rotating that cycle through and turning it in into smoked salmon, it keeps the fresh fish fresh and then utilizes that, you know, seconds or what would be shrink for a grocery store, what they throw away. And I turn it into another product that I actually just sell and I don't lose any money. So I have a real problem throwing food away.
0: Yeah, I would imagine so. And how did Provador, how did your relationship with Provador come about? And was that something, obviously, it had to excite you because you did it? Yeah. Uh, But that's a little different than being out on Hawthorne.
2: Yeah, it was. You know, at Hawthorne, it it created, you know, it was this entrepreneurial era of Flying Fish and me, and, and I was doing all these farmer's markets, and I was doing Hawthorne, and then I started wholesale, and I was selling to the restaurants, and I spread so thin all over the place. But it also got my name out there, and it got my reputation up and got me in the restaurant world, and it got me in the consumer world. And with that reputation, I, I got into, you know, brains of, of pasta works. And then they, they came and approached me about this new venture that they had, which was, is now Provador. And so they invited me to a flying fish company to do the fish. And out of that, I, I've also sold local pasture raised meats over the years as kind of a secondary thing outside of the fish, just to get some extra revenue. Uh, working with local grass-fed beef and lamb and pasture-raised pork and, and pasture-raised chicken and stuff. So out of the invite, I also decided to take on the meat program there. So I created a little sub- sub-brand called the Meat Mongers. I didn't know that. Yeah, and then and then we out of the the space after I committed and said yes I was interested in doing that project, um the I de- developed the oyster bar idea. So now we've got a little restaurant along with the meats where we do the fresh patched raised meats, we make our own sausages, and then I do the sustainable seafood. So I've got my own little corner at Provador.
0: That's nice. Yeah. And there's nobody. Is there anybody else
2: doing something like you're doing there? No, no. So I'm the exclusive. So we've all got our own category. There's three. Right. right. I just meant yeah.
0: in category. Categorically, there's not a there's not a produce person that they've contracted with yeah human.
2: produce Josh uh, owns Rubinet Produce uh, okay. over there so there he, Pasta Works does they're the anchor tenant they do about 70% of everything they do charcuterie the cheese um, case they do all the dry goods they've got the wine room that's Pasta Works and they've got an amazing chef uh, Chef Derek McCarthy that does the arrosto the chicken because that that's
1: pretty yeah. good how's it's that
2: yeah they're great yeah and then they've got some deli case items that, that chef does as well so they're doing a great job with that they're the anchor tenant then the subleases are myself flying fish company who does the fish, the meat, and the oyster bar, and then Rubinette Produce, Josh, who does um, all amazing. He's doing a really, really great job sourcing great local produce that's unique and different than the normal stuff and and doing a really good job. Same kind of model is what I work with, working with a bunch of small little guys, little farms. Um, I work with little fishermen, and he's doing the little farms, and they're bringing in their four boxes of apples and their you know, boxes of veggies and really nice stuff.
0: Is there... Um... A fish, uh, an Oregon fisherman that you can cite that is particularly interesting and doing some great stuff, who makes you happy?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, I mean, uh, one of my guys, one of my favorite guys are Trayfin Foods, and they're just across the border in El Waco, Washington, right across from Astoria there. They're my dayboat tuna guys, so they take me out fishing with them. And in the summer times, the local albacore tuna are located about 40 miles off the Oregon coast during June or July, August, September basically. So we, they are out and back in the same day. So it's kind of a sport boat, but it's used commercially. You can catch about 200 fish on it in, in a day is, is the most, which is a big day for tuna, for a small bo- tuna boat. So hook and line, day boat, so out and back in the same day. It also matters with tuna and sushi quality products, it matters how you handle the fish. So after you catch them, you cut their gills so that they bleed all the blood out of their flesh so you don't end up with a fillet that has a bunch of blood in it um you also um, um make sure that they they get bonked so that they die right away so that they're not bruising themselves by beating themselves up on the deck and flopping around because that affects the flesh and the the texture and everything
0: well i remember um going back to my fish market in guilford yeah. connecticut they sold different uh, types of har- swordfish and mm-hmm. the one that was the best was harpooned because yes. they weren't swimming around that's right. or flailing around. They were just, it's yep. over with. Yep. And uh, Single line. Uh,
2: can yep. you get any of that? <clears throat> you know... Would you please? <laughs> and
0: would you get some cherry stone clams? Yeah, yeah I can. I can <laughs>
2: get that stuff for you. You bet. Well, get it for yeah. the
0: people who can make pizza.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, for the clam pizza? Yeah, ah! for
0: clam pizza. I, the manillas don't do anything for no. me and they're no. not... so. Uh, it would be great. Yeah, so, yeah, you can do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah special
2: right. orders all day long. All right, well, I'll <laughs> figure out
0: how to get them. Get on the on the end. On the end of that. Yeah, the-
2: you guys can sign up for my email. I send out a once a week fresh fish email. Uh, you can go to it on Oregon or um, flanefishcompany.com. On the website, you can sign up. It's a constant contact email that goes out that's really well done. We send out what what's fresh each week, You know what kind of local meats we have in, our sausages, uh, what's going on at the oyster bar, and also talks about sustainability and just regional stuff of what we're doing with policy and, and, and the work that we do. So it's a really good way to, to get, stay in touch with us and get stable with the topics these food these these really important topics in seafood and 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 meats and sustainability
0: so just to make sure i get this in because i have a couple other things i want to ask you yeah. but i think <clears throat> the big question is you know we had when damien uh magista was was oh, involved yeah. you know when, when Bee local was his deal he came in and he talked about all the the shit that was going on with bees and what we should be concerned about but the final question was do you, are you, are you optimistic? Are we going to get out of this? Is it, are we going to have a population? How are you, how do you feel overall that your grandchildren, uh, will, do, will they be able to enjoy the seafood we enjoy? Maybe not necessarily the same varieties, but will they be able to enjoy them?
2: That's a good question. Thank you for, for bringing that up. Uh, cause you did mention something similar earlier and I'm, I'm glad you brought it back up because I do deep down, I have doubts about humans we are continue to to take advantage of our of our earth and we continue to treat our earth in a way that is in my opinion not sustainable so i that's part of my drive is that i feel so guilty about how we're treating it and how we disrespect it so there's part of me that that does have doubt and that's real and that's me being honest with you
0: and i will also i have to point out we're an audio medium here you had your eyes closed the whole time you were saying that. So, and what I could see was it was heartfelt. You were just almost in a trance state. When you were talking about that, yep. So it's important
2: to you. You can see it's just- it is really important. I mean, this is this is exactly what I do, and these are the the things that I think about a lot because it's really my business model, and I'm not not just greenwashing people by saying sustainability and saying that this and that, and just doing these things just to get more promotion and getting you know more recognition. That's a good point. Uh, this is really important. So to 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 finish that, what I really believe in, I really believe that we as humans have an intrinsic problem with limiting ourselves with what we take i do believe that we need that we we are smart and i do believe that we can learn from our mistakes i think that we just need to make sure that we keep getting reminded of the things that we did Coming from your land on the East Coast, we made a lot of mistakes on the East Coast. We have created frameworks in our fisheries policy. We created the exclusive economic zone, which means that boats can't fish within two hundred miles of our coast, like foreign boats. Because these old these foreign vessels used to can't come into the Cape Cod and those nice. things. They just wiped it all out. And those those East Coast um cod stocks and stuff they've tried to recover them and tried to recover them and they're not recovering because there's not enough adult species there to recover so we have we had a problem we did fix some of the problem and push these boats off of the coast but it was too late so we've got to learn from that mistake and the atlantic salmon used to be wild salmon on the east coast and now those are extinct they're not there anymore so we need to learn from those mistakes here on the west coast We do have amazing fisheries. We had the lingcod fishery, the petrale fishery, petrale sole, and then the rockfish, um, several species of rockfish that were basically endangered on the overfish list. We had rebuilding programs that were 10-year rebuilding programs. We set up these frameworks of areas that you could fish and couldn't fish to so that the adults could spawn and create more stocks of those. And those species have rebuilt themselves in half that 10 years. And they're already back at more sustainable levels where we've been able to allow more fishing to happen. So we again had a problem. We recognize the problem. We create framework to fix the problem through fisheries policy and through you know the 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 state troopers making sure that we're doing the doing the work, and the work can be done, and it is possible. So I absolutely believe that we can have fish for my kids, for your kids, for our grandchildren when those days come. Uh, that's nationally, I do believe that we have issues internationally with these highly migratory species like tuna that go from one country to the next, and um, really creating framework that. You know, once you get out into the high seas where there's no governing body, that's a big problem. And and there is still a lot of work that needs to get done. We need to continue to ask more questions, um, put more pressure on this illegal, unreported, and unregulated fishing framework that we have that Obama put into place. So I do believe that with work, it can be saved.
0: Is that going away? Would I, because it seems like everything Obama put in place... This guy wants to take it away.
2: Yeah, it has been. I I do quite a bit of work with fisheries policy, and right now we're uh, renewing our national fishery policy called the Magnuson-Stevens Act, and it is a shit show. It is an absolute shit show. The things that are happening with the national monuments, with marine protected areas... Um, with fisheries policy, allowing more flexibility and just basically disregarding things like total allowable catch, these scientific-based catch limits that they say, oh, you know what? This year we didn't get any recreational fishing time in, so we're going to go ahead and allow that for another 30 days because that's a big industry, and those guys pay us a lot of money, so we're going to go ahead and allow that. That's bullshit, mm-hmm. and that needs to stop, and, and we need to follow science. We need to make these decisions and 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 stay firm on them because hard decisions are hard it's hard to swallow that yes we don't have a recreational season this year that's hard tough shit
0: yeah so do we have um is there the uh the room to fuck this up for a few years and then get it back <sighs>
2: <laughs> it makes it you know i've i've i'm I'm learning a lot in this last year of what's been happening because it's just like from one president to the next they can just fuck the last guy over and just reverse everything that the last guy did and then the next guy can do the same to this guy and and you know I I I I also have my doubts <laughs> in policy in general. Although I do work with fisheries policy and the Marine Fish Conservation Network, and that and just we're just got to keep on fighting. And and I think with the population and that, are we just if we fight hard enough, I do think that we can continue to 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 protect it and to work hard at it and 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 save it.
0: Well, cool. Yeah. So. Events like Shuck help do that. That's right. And you've got, I'm sure that's not the only thing you're doing. It's just no. an event. So, <laughs> you, so I would suggest that people get on your Flying sh- Fish mailing list, see what's going on. Thanks. Hear what's going on, stay in touch with you. I've been, uh, as I always say on this podcast, I've been guilty of not being down to visit you near enough. I won't say never, but...
2: <laughs> I appreciate uh, all the support <laughs> I can get.
0: But we um, get down there more often. But uh, to lo- to end on a lighter note, and I don't know if I'm putting you on the spot, but I'm a, um, an avid lover of fish and chips. Yes. And so, I, you know, I have my favorites on the coast that I'm generally always um, advocating there. And one of them... Do you want... We can take... <laughs> uh, one of them is down in... Um, in South Beach, South Beach Fish Market. Have you been down there? Uh, South Beach, no. Oh, can we go sometime? Can I take you to see what you think? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so there's that, but do you have any in Portland places to, maybe not necessarily fish and chips, but yes, fish and chips that you particularly love, that you recommend?
2: You know, funny that you ask that. I just actually went out a couple nights ago with a couple buddies, and we went down to the uh Toffee Club. And they had a great fish and chips. I've never heard of it. It was right down here on Hawthorne in Southeast. Uh Southeast. Let's see. That is eleventh, tenth, maybe ninth, uh Southeast, ninth in Hawthorne and Toffee Club, they did a really good job. It was it was damn good fish and chips. Nice. So, yep. Yeah, that was that was the best one uh that I think I've had so far in Portland by far. There's not a lot of fish and chips around.
0: No, and there you know what I'm now trying to rack racked my brain thinking, where do I like to go in Portland? And I know there are some, but nothing that is that outstanding to me that is no. coming to mind right now. No. There's some good fish and chips. I just had a great, if you had this completely off topic, but mm-hmm. think of fried food. Burger Stevens uh, fried chicken sandwich down at the new food carts in Pioneer Square. No. Oh, my God. Oh you got to do that. Yep. That's a suggestion I yeah, made yeah. to you. You just gave me that suggestion. I'll pay you back with that. So anything else we need to know about Chuck Portland? We t- we discussed it. We interspersed it throughout this yes. podcast. But one more, just so you don't say, hey, I forgot to say this.
2: <laughs> you know, the, the launch party on Friday night is, is uh, complimentary. It's free. You can just show up uh, RSVP on the website uh, or, sorry, on the Facebook page. You know the other events are super reasonable, thirty bucks um, for the. And so light. this is something
0: you're going to be doing every year. So yeah. given the fact that people only X number of people are going to hear this between now and That's February, true. when does it start? We didn't. I don't second even know if ninth. we mentioned the date. You probably did. Yeah. February second through ninth. Then probably next year around this time. Yep people have the same opportunities. So That's right. the majority of people who hear this are gonna hear it after that. So just look forward, put it on your calendar for next year. And probably the best thing to do is get on your mailing list, which I just mentioned. Yeah, get on the mailing Point
2: list. For, you know, and, and even aside from Flying Fish Company and, and and what I do, again, this is this is more than just me and more than just Portland. What I wanna do is I want to create awareness with a consumer that you guys are asking the questions wherever you are in the United States or, or worldwide for that matter uh, for the reach that we have here on this podcast, I want to create a model. I need, I need you guys to ask the questions at the restaurants. I need you to support the local fishermen. If you can do a CSF, a community store, supported fishing you know, support box where you buy fish from the fishermen. If you buy, you know, just buy USA product, don't buy the foreign stuff, ask what the questions are, you know, ask the questions at the restaurants. So those questions would be, where did this come from? Yep. How? how when was it caught, right? Or you tell y-
0: me. Yeah, are,
2: I mean, I would say just, I mean, the, the most important thing right now is where did it come from? I mean...
0: Specifically, it, uh, you know, the, not necessarily just the region, but which, wh- who they country, bought it from? Country,
2: no, country of origin, okay. uh, you know, just, just buying the USA products. Oh, that's um,
0: the basic and easy question. Basic easy
2: thing is, is just buy USA products or if, if it is, you know, and then, and then I, I would say secondarily is to support the Monterey Bay Seafood Watch. So there's an app that you can buy or not buy, it's free. There's the little cards that you can, that you can get at the, at, from the website and that. It's called the Monterey Bay Seafood Watch. And what that'll do is you look up what species it is if you're looking at barramundi. And it's from Australia, but you're not sure if you should eat it or not. You look up on Monterey Bay Seafood Watch and it tells you whether it's green listed, yellow, or red. And just avoid the red.
0: I believe you can get that at Bamboo Sushi too.
2: Yeah, bamboos. Yeah. So they're, they're, um, yep. They do a great job with their sustainability practices. And Absolutely.
0: All right. So that's good. Now I'm, now I'm hungry. Yeah, I have me to too. go do that. And this is the latest we've ever recorded podcasts. That's cool. Usually we're really talking about the, the people. You are so uh, entrenched in what you do and passionate about you do, what you do. And it's one thing I found in this podcast. Sometimes you try to find out what people are doing on their weekends and so forth and they're living, they're living their business and living <laughs> their passion. So it sounds as though you're, you know, you're, it, it's obvious you're living your passion this is what i do live breathe and eat it yeah so good so i appreciate it we can everybody can meet you at chuck and have a conversation with you and of course always find you down at provador uh
2: on sandy boulevard yeah, 2340 northeast sandy
0: yeah and what days of the week where well, give us some
2: hours over there you know that's seven days a week so it's nine thirty in the morning till 8 p.m and when are you there I'm there. Um, kind of more. We're not going to hold you to it. No, more more uh, middle of the day stuff during the week, and then I, I work an oyster bar shift where I shuck oysters behind the oyster counter on Friday nights. Friday
0: nights, yeah. okay. Yeah. Friday nights, I'm going to be down there. Thanks, uh, I'm in town soon on Friday night. Thank you so much. Thank please. you. I so appreciate much. it. Really my appreciate my it. pleasure. I'm glad we were able to put this together. It was quick. Cheers. Starting this morning. <laughs> Bam.
1: Right at the fork is brought to you by. Zupans, unsurpassed quality. From the best meats and wines to local baked goods, fresh flowers, and an extensive craft beer selection. Step into Zupans and be inspired for your next meal. Food-loving customers as well as local chefs know that Zupans is the place to find the very best Northwest Bounty in Portland, West Burnside, Southwest McAdam, and Lake Oswego. Local and family-owned for over 40 years, Zupans Markets.